Hey everyone, welcome to Black Equity Podcast. Truly excited for this conversation today. I recently came across an article from Senator Kirsten Gilbrand. Uh, Senator Kirsten Gilbrand is the United States Senator for New York, official Senate account, I'm reading from her Twitter. Okay, and she re- and I actually posted this on my Twitter. You can follow me at DJM Equity on Twitter. And the title of the article is Give Minority Owned Business Better Access to Capital. I believe this was written uh, towards the end of 2020. Uh, The subtitle of this particular article is this pandemic has put a magnifying glass on the inaccuracies that lay at the heart of our economy. We have an obligation to fix them. So if you want to read more about this particular article, uh, I advise that you go to the show notes and click the link for the article. But inside of this article is really uh, diving into where is the capital at for minority owned businesses, black and minority owned businesses, women owned businesses. And our guest today actually has an entire mission around this particular topic. I'm really excited about this because I've been trying to have this conversation for the longest. I've reached out to many different organizations who, for whatever reason, uh, have turned down opportunities to speak on Black Equity Podcasts about minority and women-owned businesses. Some of them have been women themselves who did not want to have this particular conversation. And it just so happened uh, that our guest today, Armand Davis, came by and wanted to have the conversation because this is what he's built his legacy on. He's built his legacy on building ecosystems of exchange for minority and women-owned businesses. And you're going to hear more about that on today's episode. Truly glad that we've had the opportunity to speak on this. And now, without further ado, let's jump into this episode with the conversation already in progress. I'm DJ Motri of Black Equity Network, and welcome to Black Equity Podcast. Right, we are back for another great episode of Black Equity Podcast, and man, this is about to be a really great episode. I'm really excited uh, for our guest today, uh, Armand. Welcome to Black Equity. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's a it's an honor to be here. For those who don't know who you are, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your company, uh, and what you what you're working on right now. Well, my company is the Paragon Group, and it's uh, it's a private equity firm. We have two funds. Uh, the first fund is to invest in minority and woman-owned businesses, enterprises. The second fund is a opportunistic real estate fund. But really, the focus here is always in finding micro businesses that are owned by minorities and women, and giving them 
opportunities to grow. A big, big issue that you see with business, particularly micro businesses, is lack of access to capital. This is particularly something that's true in our community, and we're trying to bridge that gap here. Mm-hmm. And I believe my investment thesis is that investing in uh, minority and women-owned businesses is uh, is profitable. And I understand that it is the right thing to do, and there's a that's a, a reason for doing it. There's a case to be made, right, for doing it under that premise. But when we're going to start talking about getting significant dollars and significant allocations from pension funds, from uh, large philanthropic organizations, from corporations, you have to be able to make the business case, right? right. And uh, I believe that there's a business case to be made. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, particularly black businesses, black-owned businesses, women-owned businesses historically are undervalued uh, in comparison to businesses of similar size and scope. And so I think that the business case is that if you provide access to capital for these businesses, that you will make money, make a good return over time. And so that's my message to my investors, and, and that's what we are trying to do. Uh, here with, with with the firm. This is going to be a really uh, fascinating, interesting conversation. I'm looking forward uh, to learning how you got to this point and uh, how others can uh, maybe join you on that journey as well. Uh, there's something that stood out to me. Go ahead. I, was say it was, I got this point through, through lots of wailing and gnashing of teeth, as they say in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Something you said stood out to me, man. You said micro businesses, right? So let, let's yeah. start there. When you say micro, because I've been kind of having that conversation about small to mid-sized businesses, micro businesses, and the definition tends to kind of change depending on who you're talking to. So sure. In your world, what is micro? What is a micro business to you? Well, let's start with the definition of small business, right? Um, because the technical definition of a small business is not what necessarily you or I would think of a small business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe, and I, I, I may be, the SBA has, you are considered a small business by, SB, by, the, by the SBA as long as I believe it's between uh, either under 20 or under $30 million, either one of those two. But when we think about businesses, right, we don't think of a 20 million, even a $20 million business as a small business, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but you qualify for SBA loans and all SBA benefits and everything if your business is, you know, $20 million or under $20 million. Um, when I say micro businesses, I think about where most of the people from our community are, and that's really under 10 million, right? Okay. Even under 5 million uh, in terms of in terms of revenue, and most 99% of businesses, right, are going to be under 10 million dollars in revenue. Mm-hmm. And when you see these businesses, these hundred million dollar businesses, these billion dollar companies, they are the point zero one of one percent of all businesses. But most businesses are what we call mom and pops, right? Uh, where you usually have one, maybe two employees, 
Uh, oftentimes it's a husband and wife team uh, or it's a father and son or mother and daughter or father and daughter, right, or mother and son team or sisters, right, brothers. And those businesses are really more focused on meeting the day-to-day needs of the family and not necessarily focused on or geared towards uh, exponential growth. I think that there are many of those businesses that could experience and could be positioned for exponential growth if, one, they had access to capital, two, they had access to real guidance and, um, and mentorship in terms of how to properly prepare and position yourself for that next stage of growth. Hmm. Okay. And so that leaves me with a, a very, very important question. Why don't they have that access now? Well, I mean, that's a, we, don't, we don't have six hours. <laughs> um, that's true. I mean, I, I can go all the way back. You know, we we talk about our community. I mean, you can really all the way go all the way back to the end of Reconstruction, yeah. if, if you want to yeah. talk about why we don't have access um, right. and policies and procedures uh, and laws even that were put into place to prevent that from happening, whether it be from uh, being unable to vote to being unable to transfer wealth from generation to generation. Uh, you know, redlining, of course, is probably the most widely known that affects land ownership, home ownership. But there, there have been many, numerous policies and procedures that were put in place that have led us to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is begin the process of reversing that tide. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say begin that process because begin implies that no one else has attempted to do this. And I'm not... Uh, I don't think that's the case. I'm not the, the first person uh, to conceive uh, of this idea, but I'm committed to it. And I think that if if I can make an impact and bring along and help to elevate a few of our own businesses uh, from within our community and help to create that wealth, right, that is hidden from us, um, that's inherent in growing a business exponentially, then that knowledge and that wealth can be passed on and moved forward. Mm. Uh, It it leaves me wondering, I mean, you see this uh, huge gap within uh, the private equity space and really the financial sector overall, um, where Black-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses have a huge gap compared to uh, white male-owned uh, businesses. Why go in this direction? What I mean, any everyone sees the gap, but not everybody necessarily goes towards this direction and says, well, I'm going to make this part of my mission, part of my purpose. How do you, what, what was going on in your past or uh, your upbringing that says, hey, I'm going to go look at this area as a, a possible area to uh, put my put my life, my, my blood, put in tears into it. Well, I mean, I, for me, one, I've always been entrepreneurial. I've always wanted to uh, have my own business. My background is um, 
a little, I would say, almost a hybrid. So I graduated from Florida A&M University, MBA in finance, uh, worked, uh, first job was at Goldman Sachs, uh, one of the big uh, bold brackets, you would say, Wall Street firms. Had uh, did not work there for a very long time. Frankly, did not have a great experience there. Um, it was, um, but it, some of it was my youth, I think, and inexperience. And others, other things were the culture. Some some things with the culture of the firm that didn't provide necessarily the support that was needed. Um, but left there, went to work for Suntrust Bank in Atlanta and worked there for, I believe, about four years or so. I worked in portfolio management. One of the things, what I did was help to manage the investment portfolios for high net worth entrepreneur clients of the bank. So by the time I got about four years into that, I was really ready to start my entrepreneurial journey. Ooh. So I, I, I stepped out on faith and bought a small construction business. It was a stucco repair company uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta. And bought that business in 2006. In 2007, uh, I thought I was the smartest man in the world. And we had a great, a great year. And by 2008, uh, the recession hit, mm-hmm. and the bottom fell out. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about lessons learned, right, I, I bought the business from a gentleman who had been running the business for 10 years. I had no prior experience at the time um, with uh, in construction. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, oh, will you buy the business from me? I'll, I'll teach you the business, and then I'll go on off myself, and you can run the business and take the business to unprecedented heights. Well, after about after two months, he quit. And so I had bought a business, you know, they say your first deal is your worst deal. That's a a common saying, right, in in M&A and private equity. So I I, I had given him about $100,000 up front, (laughs) which, right, you you don't ever really want to do on such a small transaction, uh, such a small business. And after two months, he quit. And so I had a business that I had no, in an industry I had no knowledge or experience in, and uh, and had two had two months of training and had to figure it out from there. And so what do you do there? You're you're at a crossroads. You have a business that you just purchased. The former owner leaves within two months. What is your next move? How do you how do you pivot there? Well, I, well, I, I reached out to experts in the business. So the first thing I did was start to reach out to home inspectors and ask them what they saw and how they went about doing their inspections and the issues that they found with construction. And I would take them to lunch and pick their brains and go through that process with them. And what resulted from that was one, they became my teachers, right? And began to share with me the knowledge. But also what happened is because they had sat with me and they had explained to me, okay, when I see this issue, this is what in this bu- in a building, this is what the cause is typically, and this is how it needs to be repaired. They also then began to refer me business because they knew that they knew that my company would get 
the work done according to their standards because they were the ones that taught me the standards. Right. It makes sense. And so that helped me, uh, really helped me tremendously after I left, I mean, after the guy that I bought the company from left the business. Mm-hmm. Another key thing is that I grew and expanded the business. Like I said, it was a stucco repair business when I bought it. Um, I went and got a contractor's license to be able to do larger projects, commercial work, other things, and began to put, as they say, more arrows in my quiver uh, to be able to get work. So now it became if someone called because they needed stucco repair on a building um, and we would go out and do a tremendous job on that, then it would be, well, what else can you do? Oh, well, we can paint. No, we also we can do your flooring and we can do these other things, and that's how – I was able to um, grow the business as much as I was able to. And then when the recession hit, the phone just stopped ringing for everybody. Mm. Um, By 2009, I was on the verge of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I literally had filled out all of the paperwork to file. And I was sitting in front of the bankruptcy attorney's office to go in. And all I had to go in was handing the paperwork and handing my check. Uh, for the fee, and um, I was going to be bankrupt. And Mm -hmm. I just could not get out of my truck. I Mm. could not get out of the truck. Physically, I tried to move. My legs would not move. And so since my legs would not move, I just backed out of the parking space and drove home. And I vowed to figure it out. And it, it, it were definitely some difficult times, white knuckle, white knuckling it, you know, on through. Um, but I'm proud to say that you know, we made it through, and I didn't lay off a single employee during the wow. great recession. Wow, that's a, an amazing, amazing story. And that's your first company that you purchased. That was my first deal, my first deal. Um, yeah, I learned a tremendous amount um, from that, and I still own that business. It, Kind of on is basically on on autopilot now, but it's mm-hmm. it's, it's it's grown to the point where it can be on uh, on autopilot at this point. Now, there's something in this story. I'm 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 sensing some black equity in this story. There's something in the story that's jumping out at me. How did you know to acquire a business? Now, let me give you a little bit of context here. Now, many people listening to this. Uh, episode right now, they probably know now about buying businesses and acquiring businesses and having um, instant uh, equity in, in the company. But how did you know? Was that from Goldman Sachs? So where did that knowledge, that wisdom come from? Hey, let me actually go buy a business instead of start one. You know, that's a fascinating question. I've actually never been asked that question. I have to say, you know, I'm just going to give the credit to the ancestors. Uh, No one taught me and said, well, you should consider buying a business rather than trying to start a a business or, or some, or some other method. It was always in me that I was going to own a business. As I began to think about how I wanted to approach it, I didn't want to do franchising. Mm -hmm. Um, Franchising. Listen, if, if people make a lot of money, owning and running franchises, that's not for me. I need the the room to be able to be as creative as possible. Yeah. Um, I'm not necessarily 
one to work within the, the stringent framework of the franchise. Um, so I didn't want to do a franchise. And I also, at the time, through some real estate investments, had some equity and had some capital that had uh, that I'd accumulated and thought that it would make more sense to acquire a business that was already existing and take that business in a direction that the owner either couldn't take it or wouldn't take it rather than try to build something from nothing, from scratch. Um, and so that's kind of how I came to that conclusion. Thank God that I did do that because, yes, if I think if I had tried to start a construction business from scratch uh, in 2006, I definitely don't think I would have been able to survive the recession. Let's talk about that real quick because yeah. there's even more black equity in this. And so I really want our listeners to hear this. What do you think was the would be the main difference if you had started a business in 2006 within the construction in, uh, industry versus you actually acquiring a business around that same time? What did acquiring the business give you um, access to or leverage that starting a business wouldn't have? Well, I mean, it really gives you access to, to, to three things. One, it gives you access to a track record. Right. right, because once you acquire the business, you've acquired the business, but you can still say this business has been in existence for 10 years, right? So it gives you an access to a track record, and that access to that track record gives you access to capital, right? Mm-hmm. The second thing it gives you access to is a brand, because mm-hmm. you're not going to buy, you're not going to buy a company that has a terrible reputation or terrible name uh, within the, within the community. So the company that I bought did have a good reputation. Within within the community, and so I was able to then continue to to, um, to capitalize and build on that reputation um, from within the community. And then the third thing, and really the most important thing that you get access to is you get access to the people, you get access to the the, the, the human resources, which there were really good people working in the country, particularly the foreman. Of the, of the construction crews, and they were kind of beaten down a little bit by the previous owner, and not really given a lot of opportunities to express their own talent and their own uh, abilities to think quickly and think creatively in solving problems. And I just really gave them the platform to be able to do that. I said, "I listen. I, I don't come from." working in this business and working in this industry for 30 years, my job is to provide access and platform for you all to express your talents and your skills. And so my job is to make sure that you have another job to go to when you finish this one. Right. Yeah. I love that kind of thing. Do good work on these jobs. I'll always have another job for you. Right. And we kind of worked, a, had a deal between us, an understanding between us. And so the most valuable, you know, in any business, your most valuable resource is your human resource. I agree. You, you mentioned something earlier, and we're, we're definitely going to get back to um, your, your mission of today. Um, but there's, there's so much, there's so many gems 
within what you're saying, I want to make sure that we pull out all these nuggets that are popping up. You said earlier that you wanted, you knew you wanted to own a business. When did you know that? Is that at six? Is that at 11? Is that at 16? When did you know? When did you first have that thought? I want to own a business one day. Probably at the latest eight, eight years old. Probably wow. at the latest. Wow. I, <laughs> I went to I went to take your child to work day. Okay. Um, and my dad, my dad worked for the Missouri Department of Natural Resources, and he drove around. Uh, I'm from St. Louis, born and raised, and he would drive all around St. Louis and the outskirts of St. Louis, and go to various points and stations, check the water quality, check the air quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went with him on Take Your Child to Work Day. And I was and I was miserable. I'll just tell you. Um, and so the next take your child to work, I went with my mom. Mm-hmm. My mom worked for IBM. She worked for IBM for forty years. It's the only job she ever had. Wow. And her office was in this thirty-story, gleaming black office tower in downtown St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And all the men were wearing suit and tie. And you could look out the window in her office and watch the Cardinals baseball game at wow. the stadium from her window in her office. You could see the arch, St. Louis arch from her window. And I said, I want to do this. <laughs> I want to own this. I want to. I want to. I want to have a business that has this kind of building and works in this kind of space. Just go ahead and say it. you wanted to own IBM. Just out of I wanted to own IBM at eight <laughs> years old. I wanted to, yeah. I, I mean, that's that's kind of true, yeah. I, I yeah. wanted to own IBM at eight years old. So that was for the Take Your Child to Work Day when you start doing that, usually second, third grade. Yeah. Um, and so by that at that point, I knew that I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. It actually, I'm not going to say it, it hurt me a little bit in between that age and as I got into my 20s. Because I was also a person who was like, well, if this doesn't have anything to do with teaching me how to run a business, I'm not really interested in it. Mm-hmm. And so I was not as good of a student as I should have been uh, throughout school. I didn't start. I didn't start making. I didn't become an, an A student until graduate school, really. Mm. And by uh, then, you're focusing on material that was specific to what you would be doing today. Absolutely right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and so, yeah. So that was, I mean, my second inspiration to become an entrepreneur, um, which I think is probably for a lot of people in my generation, is uh, is Boomerang, Eddie Murphy and Boomerang. Yeah, that actually, I can see that connection. Go ahead, tell me, right. tell me why. Tell yeah, me why. well, I thought that I, I thought I was going to be, you know, like Marcus Graham and mm-hmm. going to do advertising be in, and run a big advertising agency and, 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 and live that life, live that lifestyle. And I remember I took my very first marketing class uh, at FAMU, and I realized that marketing is such a science mm-hmm. that people don't really understand that there's so much data and science but beneath the creativity. Right. And... I was like, oh, no, that's not for me. That's like, it's, crap, it's cramping my creativity. It's not for me. <laughs> I hear that. And so um, 
from there, I got my first actual kind of entrepreneurial work experience. I got hired as a as a college agent by Northwestern Mutual, and I went and got. I mean, it was real. I was 19 years old, and I went and got my life insurance license, my health insurance license, and I was driving around Tallahassee, Florida, in the summer of 1998, selling life insurance. Uh, and financial do and financial plans, and that was you know that business is very entrepreneurial. Like you, you make yep. you, you, you what you kill. You know they you, you might get a, a hundred bucks a week or so for a stipend, but you, you can't live unless you're out there selling. And that really ingrained in me a lot of the discipline of it in yep. terms of working. And it also made me comfortable with talking with people who were significantly older and more experienced with me uh, about things. Because, right, most of the people that I'm selling life insurance to, I'm 19 years old. I'm not selling life insurance to my peers. Right. Right. I'm selling life insurance to um, to people who are in their 50s. And, you know, in order to be able to gain their trust, and you have to have a real, you know, you have to, one, know what you're talking about and also be able to convey it successfully. And so that was my first real entrepreneurship experience. And I fell in love with that. Um I've always enjoyed sales. I worked sales jobs in high school, uh, and and I thought to myself, you know what, sales is something that will allow me to um, work my work really hard, and also still to exercise, you know, critical thinking, create creativity in terms of how to convey the message. And so now it became, well, what can I sell that I can be uh, an entrepreneur and be uh, and be able to build something. And that's how I ended up coming around to investments. And so completed my MBA in finance. But, um, and it's interesting, we're having this conversation shortly after the 20-year anniversary. I graduated uh, in the spring of 2002. So it was, you know, six months, eight months after the 9-11 attacks happened. And yeah. Wall, Street, Wall Street was dead. Mm. And so... Um, there weren't a lot of opportunities out there uh, for uh, for us, particularly coming out of a, an HBCU, frankly. There yeah. weren't a lot of opportunities out there. And so when to work for somebody else, didn't jump up straight out into entrepreneurship, went to work for somebody else, uh, like I said, and left there for a short, after a short period of time, went to work for another firm, and then... Um, and then start was ready to start my entrepreneurial journey. But at the time that I left corporate America, I was only uh, 27, 28 years old. And I've only really doubted myself in business once or twice ever in my life. But this is the first time that I ever did. And I really, at that time, I wanted to start a hedge fund and short the market. I would have, to have emails. I was sending emails to my uh, portfolio managers at SunTrust saying the market's going to short, I mean, the market's going to crash. Yeah. We, should, we should go to cash. We should tell clients to go to cash. Um, and I just, I wanted to go and start a hedge fund, and I just didn't believe that I would be able to raise $20 million as a 27-year-old black, black guy with a, without an Ivy League education. And I never even tried. I never even asked anybody for the money. And that's a huge lesson, right, that 
I learned and that, you know, when you get out there, when you have a, a, the, the, your convictions, when you're convicted in something, you have to step out on it. You have yeah. to step out on it. And there's no such thing as failure. Either it's going to work or you're going to learn a tremendous amount. Either way, it's success. It's a success for you. And so, um, but that time, that was the, the first time I've only, I've, I've doubted myself in business. And so I looked for a business that I could buy or acquire. And I said, okay, I'm going to buy and acquire a business. I'm going to grow that business. And then I'll come back. I'll come back to, to the investment space. And so uh, I ended up buying the, uh, the small construction business. And you've heard that story, and we went we went through that story. Mm-hmm. And now that business is one of several businesses that I own between my wife and I. We own several businesses. And I'm now, along the way, I got a second master's degree in commercial real estate investment. And now I'm coming back to really where my purpose lies. And that's working in the investment space and helping uh, helping minority and women-owned founders to unlock their full potential in terms of what they could be with as business owners, um, as operators. You know, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned a very key term that may end up being the name of this episode. You said uh, finding the hidden wealth. Um, Within within this sector, really of minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, there's a an opportunity here um, to, uh, like you said, a lot of these businesses are undervalued and uh, can be uh, grown uh, exponentially. And so I want to kind of talk about that uh, about that hidden wealth uh, that you you mentioned earlier in this episode. Um, what is it? What is it about this particular area that most investors are missing? Why are they overlooking this particular area? Well, so I don't want to generalize, you know, as much as possible in terms of trying to assess what large institutional investors and private equity investors, high net worth investors are thinking. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, it's just ease. It's about access. Private equity, venture capital, by its very nature and definition, is elite and exclusive. The laws that were written that allow it to exist were written to benefit wealthy people and their families. And so you typically what you see is that the people that are doing these deals are people who have wealth, come from wealth, and they work within their network, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, frankly, there just aren't a, a ton of us that are within those networks. And so it's just easier, right, to invest in the guy, your guy from the country club who you've known, you've known him for 30 years. You guys have played golf together. Your family's on vacation together. And his son has created an app and is starting to happen. He's put a couple hundred thousand dollars into his son's business. And he asked you, can you put a couple hundred thousand dollars in? Next thing you know, the son has raised a million dollars for his app, for his new app. Right. Mm-hmm. And we just don't, we just tend not to have access 
to those to, to that those kind of network. I, I I know I couldn't go and get a million dollars from my family at any point, any time. Not from my entire family, let alone from one person in my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that in some senses, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that it's something necessarily sinister that's happening or going on. It's just investors being a successful investor is hard enough right mm-hmm. and i think it's just for a lot of these people it's just easier it's just easier and they don't necessarily have the relationships they don't have their ears to the streets they don't have their pulse uh their fingers on the pulse of things to be able to go into our community and build relationships and identify um founders and businesses that are truly capable of of scaled scaled growth, and so they just don't, and there hasn't really been pressure for them to do so. Uh, that's changed a little bit over the past year or so, and you're starting to see more pressure for equality or equity in terms of the distribution of funds, but it's still it's still a, a, a real challenge. I mean, women-led private equity VC funds received 3.3% of all the capital that was allocated to venture funds last year. Ooh. And that's, those are the VC funds, right? So that's not, those are not necessarily the enterprises. Right. Right. Black and Latinx, Latinx-led venture funds only accounted for 4.5% of all the capital raised in 2020. Mm. <laughs> it's wild. All, all, all of it is raised in 2020. Um, and so I think that what you see there, I mean, that, that to me is the snapshot, right, when you're looking at it of undervalued, right? Mm-hmm. Because women make up right 50% of the population. If you add up black and Latinx, you know, population in the United States, it's what, I mean, it, it, it's where we're black is 13%, 12, 13%. Latinx is 15, 18, 18%, 20%. It's over 30%. So how do you have over 30% of the population that accounts for 5% of the money? Hmm. Right. I mean, just looking at it, it's clear as day, at least in our eyes, because maybe we're looking at it from a, a black perspective, just being honest. It's clear as day that, hey, there's a huge opportunity here. Right? Well, yes. And not only that, right, but also by its definition, right, private equity and venture capital is a is a roll your sleeves up and deal with adversity business. This is not large, this is not large cap value investments, right? Where you know you can put your money, it's almost like a, you just put your money away, you come back, you check it in six months, you know it's never going to go away. It might fluctuate slightly, but it's it's going to perpetually go up, right? I mean, these businesses, I mean, this is, this is real, like I said before, it's real like white knuckle stuff. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you're trying to take a business that might only be uh, might only have one product, or might be a one million dollar business, and you're trying to turn it into a hundred million dollar business. 
Right. And you've got to really roll up your sleeves. You've got to get out there. You've got to work. You've got to deal with adversity. You've got to deal with the suddenness of disappointment. You've got to deal with the pressure of uh, financial downturns because you're not as insulated through having significant amount of uh, significant sums of revenue and investment and backing. Well, uh, who, if not us, who is better to participate uh, to deal with adversity, right? And overcome yeah. adversity and thrive in the face of adversity, right? I, I couldn't think of anyone better than us to do that. I, I don't think there's anyone better than us. Right. And so if you look at just those two factors, right, the fact yeah. that we make up significant number, uh, a significant amount of the population, but a significant, uh, 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 a far less significant amount of the dollars that are allocated. And you just look at our, at our overall capability to overcome, to deal with adversity, to uh, adapt and adjust. To me, this is a no brainer. Yeah. You know, Armand, as as I'm listening to uh, this conversation in my mind is, is leading me to, okay, so you created this, uh, private equity uh, firm. You're going to help uh, black, uh, minority-owned, women-owned uh, companies. How do we connect you to them? Uh, so if if those founders or those owners of those businesses are listening now, who are you looking to work with? Is it all about the numbers? Is it also working with uh, at maybe the right frequency? Uh, within an organization? Is there a certain type of industry? What exactly is the, I guess, the investor profile that you're, you're looking at right now? Well, you're asking for the investor profile, the profile of someone who would invest with me or someone who is a founder who I would invest in. Yeah, uh, I guess your investor profile, so what you would invest in. Okay, so I would invest in, I want you to have a product or a service. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want you to just only be in the idea stage. Okay. I want you to be a little further along than that, right? I want you to have a product or a service. I want to, you to have at least some proof of concept. So I want you to have some customers, right? You don't have to have a million customers. But I want, I want you to be able to show that there's a demand for your product. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I want you to have a mindset for growth. And that's, a, that's something that is um, that's extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult to quantify, the mindset for growth. But you'll find that there are some business owners who, when, they, when their business grows, they almost lose it a little bit because they're so used to doing everything themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily trust people. They don't want to hire and add to staff to be able to scale up. They want to control every aspect of the business, of the organization. And you can only get so big when you do that. And so you have to have within you, a, or as we would say, an abundance, a mindset of abundance. And positioning yourself and being open to receive uh, you receive your blessings, right? 
And so I'm not necessarily looking for a specific industry as much mm-hmm. as I'm looking for businesses that are in a position to be able to scale with one access to capital two also guidance and mentorship. So most of the companies that you're, you would potentially be working with know that they want to scale. They know they want to grow. They just need the right investor uh, such as yourself to potentially partner with and collaborate with to do that. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Yes, yes. And there are some people, right, who don't necessarily want to scale and grow and are happy yeah. they have one location, have a boutique, it's very successful, and they don't necessarily want to um, want to grow that. They're happy with their one location. That's fine. That's great. That's not for me because at the end of the day, I still have to grow the business in order to get generate returns for my investors. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're like me, right, and you were eight years old and you wanted to own a business and you wanted to own IBM one day, right? Right. And you have a business now and you want to make that the next IBM, then you know that you understand that you have to grow that business beyond you. And that's what I'm here to help you to be able to do. Now, part of, and please correct me if I'm wrong, part of uh, the position that you're in is also attracting other investors. Is that correct? Well, yes. I mean, obviously, I need. I mean, any private equity firm, venture capital firm, right? We we have to raise capital yeah. uh, from investors to uh, to execute on the investment thesis, right? And so, yes, I, I am open to and looking for uh, high net worth investors, corporate investors institutional investors, philanthropic investors that believe in the concept that minority and women-owned businesses are capable of exponential growth. Yeah. And so if an investor is listening to this, I, see, I like to approach everything from so many different perspectives because you never know who's listening, right? So right. If, investors listening to this and they believe in this mission, what else should they have uh, in order to be a good fit for you? They believe in the mission of uh, uh, investing in black-owned, minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses. They may have the capital. Is there anything else that would be a good fit for you um, along with those two? Well, I think really in addition to that, private equity by its nature, by definition, you also have to have patience, right? Because mm-hmm. you're investing you're investing in businesses that aren't mature businesses. Right. And so you have to have a certain level of patience. And I'm looking at businesses looking to have an exit in three to five years for these, you know, for these businesses or these entities. So it's not a it's not flipping a house, right? We don't buy a house and in six months, we're going to flip it and make 30% on our money. But I do expect to do uh, private equity level returns over the course of uh, the three to five years that we hold positions in these businesses. Something so else in- from an investor perspective, 
I think you, the, the first thing is you need to want to diversify, right? You want to mm-hmm. diversify your portfolio because right now, more than likely, only 5%, well, let's just give the credit and say you've doubled that, only 10% of where your capital is invested is invested in minority women-owned businesses, right? Um, so one, you want to diversify. Two, you understand and respect the fact that these businesses and these business owners have untapped potential and value you. And three, this isn't a requirement, but it's always it's always welcome if you wouldn't necessarily mind um, speaking with some of these founders on occasion and giving the benefit of your experience because that's what I do as well. I love that. Um, something else came to, came to my mind, a lot comes to my mind during these great conversations. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about internationally? Is that is that open to possibilities or is that maybe down the road? Uh, yes, down the road. Down the road. I, I'm, I'm certainly open to it down the road. Um, at this time for the first fund, I would stick with most with mostly domestic businesses. Certainly, there are plenty of domestic U.S. based businesses that could benefit uh, could benefit from this. And so, initially, yes, international is something that I would want to do down the line. Yeah. Okay. So another thing that came to mind as well is here you are, here you are starting this, um, having this fund. What does the fund manager of today have to say to the eight-year-old that was taking that trip to IBM and saying, hey, I can't wait to really make my mark on the world? What do, what do you say to that eight-year-old right now? Oh, I mean, you have some good ones here. You have some good questions. <laughs> you know, I think if I, it really, and it would make me a little emotional actually even to think about this, to consider this, but really the thing that I would say is to, to him is, I'm sorry it took so long. Mm-hmm. You know, because this is, I was led to do this right back in 2006 and like i said i doubted myself mm-hmm. and so i should have been i should have been doing this for the past 15 years but the universe always knows where you need to be right and i needed to get that 15 years of experience as an operator mm-hmm. in order for me to be able to have the empathy that's necessary to work with small business owners to grow their business. And if I had always only been on the investment side and had never really been on the operating side, then I don't necessarily know how successful I would have been. Yeah. You know, Armand, I, uh, I do everything through my gut. Whatever my gut tells me, Pretty, pretty right. Uh, about ninety-nine percent of the time, my gut says you have the pulse. You were saying earlier uh, about finding people. Uh, actually, you were saying that a lot of people don't have the pulse of this market. They don't understand uh, the, these groups of entrepreneurs. And I think 
you might be right, and maybe it's because you have the pulse, right? You you have the the necessary uh, foresight to be able to look at a business uh, that is black-owned, minority-owned, women-owned, and say, you know what, this is a home run. It's going to, like you said, we're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to have to put in some uh, some real work here, but this has the potential to go somewhere. Um, how does it feel to to know that you have that pulse? Well, I mean, it's exhilarating, right? If you think about it, because now it's it's you recognize, okay, if it, I recognize that I can see this pattern. And that's one of the things that I say I have a gift for. I have a gift for pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. And if I can have the gift of it, now it becomes, well, what are, the, what are the possibilities here? Well, the possibilities are endless because there's always going to be there's always going to be more entrepreneurs, more people who are seeking to grow their business, start a business. And so the possibilities here are infinite. And so it's exciting to be a person that's that's in that position. And I've been through the ups and downs of this. So like I said, I've been on the verge of bankruptcy. And I've gotten the big contract on the other end. And so I know what it takes to survive in that downtime, and I know what it takes not to lose your head on that good time, right? And so I think that that's a huge part of what it is that I bring to the table because of my time and my experience as a, actually as an operator. Mm-hmm. Typically, especially when you get into very, very large um, investments, it's more passive, right? Because it's, well, what's your business plan? Okay, you need $20 million to execute your business plan. Well, here's the $20 million. We own X percent of your company now. And in five years, we want X return. But it's really going, funding the managed to execute their plan. It's not you actually helping to create a plan. But when we're talking about businesses the size in which we'll be investing, we're going to actually be helping to formulate the plan as well as execute on the plan. I love that. What is the proper way for a business that wants to get your attention, an investor that wants to get your attention, what's the proper way of reaching out and uh, making that connection with you? Uh, I'm readily accessible. I mean, you can reach me, social media handles, you know, at TPG Invest um, on uh, that's on, on uh, Instagram, on uh, at I am Armand, also on Instagram, on Twitter, at Armand Davis. You can send, send me messages. Um, and I'm, I'm always open to have a conversation. You know, I think another thing is that the culture of investments, and it's naturally that way because you're dealing with large sums of money, is to always just start off at no, and then you got to get dragged to yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And one of the things that I really wanted to try to change uh, in the business is I really want to start from yes and then let you drag me to no. Mm, I like that. 
And I've experienced that, you know, in my time, in my years as a small business owner, that you, you know, you walk in a room and everybody's immediately like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't even hear you, you speak yet. And they already you haven't even done anything. Everybody's just no. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to you've got to do your do your routine. You got to do your song and dance, right? And drag them to yes. But I mean, if you have a business and you're interested in growth, then I think that that's something that we're, I'm interested in having a conversation about. Not everybody will be a fit. Not, I'm not saying that I'm going to fund everybody that I speak with, but. I'm a person who would like to, right? It's you know, it's, it's about which I, I would love to be able to, and I would love to start from that and then work backwards. Then to start from, I don't want to give money to anybody, and everybody has to kind of force me to be in a position to invest, to yeah. be in a position to invest. Another big thing, especially if you're going to be a business in which I invest, is I'm going to require that founders in which I invest mentor other entrepreneurs in their cities. Mm-hmm. It's a requirement. And I don't mean it's, I don't mean that requirement in the soft sense. I mean, I've had people who've shared knowledge and experience with me. I've learned a tremendous amount. Everyone has mentors. I plan to invest a lot of not just, not just funding, but also, the benefit of my knowledge and experience with founders in which I invest, they have to pay it forward. They have to reach back and pull others that are behind them, coming up behind them with them. Uh, and if you don't do it, I'm going to pull your funding. Ooh. So hold on. Let's, before we head out, why is that so important to you? Why is it so important that they do that? Well, it's necessary in order to build an ecosystem of exchange. You can't just take the information and it stops with you, right? You can't just take the knowledge and the experience and it stops with you. You have to you have to be really more of a vessel, right? And and because the information doesn't belong to you, the knowledge, the experience doesn't belong to you. I told you, you I told you to begin. You said, where did this come from? I said it came from the ancestors. Right. So it didn't come from me either. So I'm just a vessel. Right. And so I want to work with other like-minded founders who are prepared and eager to be vessels for the knowledge and the information and you'll be rewarded. You'll be rewarded. It definitely pays back. I mean, a thousandfold. The more you give, the more you're going to receive. So it's right. a no-brainer, but for some right. strange reason, it's hard to get some people to see that. And, yeah, and I think that that's because that comes from, you know, when you start talking about core values, right? Mm-hmm. Because the truth is, right, it makes perfect sense that if you have knowledge and you have experience, and you pass that on to other people, your neighbor, other people within your community, that knowledge and that experience, then the community as a whole is lifted up. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And so it's not about, well, let you just get all the knowledge and the information and let you try to elevate yourself 
and then you may try to turn around and pull a couple of people up. No, be a, be a disseminator of knowledge and information, and people can do with it what they will, but there will be people who will take that information and use that to better themselves and better their families because really what we're doing here is not just creating wealth for for and for our investors, right? We're also creating wealth for the founders who are then also in their communities and creating wealth within their communities. And so that's why it's required. You have to mentor other small business owners in your city. And there's a business case for it. You know, there's a business case for it too, because if you're doing that in Peso, then we have additional companies that are eligible and ideal candidates for investment. And that's, that's the pulse right there. That's your finger on the pulse there. Exactly. Each one, each one. Right. So I think that's necessary. I don't mind telling you what I do or telling you how I do it. What's meant for me is meant for me. Mm. So if I share with you what I did and how I did it, it doesn't mean you can come and take it from me. Exactly. Armand Davis, I have to say, man, this is one of the most enlightening conversations I've had in quite some time. We, uh, we're in, we're kind of in the same ecosystem, and so um, I'm looking forward to staying connected and uh, referring uh, any uh, business owners your way and allowing them to uh, introduce themselves. I'm really looking forward um, to a long, fruitful uh, connection, uh, not only through you know the podcasting realm, but in real life, man. In real life, I really want to see you win. I want to see the founders that you uh, work with win, and even if they don't work with you, I want to see everybody win. Uh, so I'm really excited. I'm glad you uh, had an opportunity uh, for this first episode uh, together for us to have this conversation, and you have an invite back, man. Anytime you want to come back and continue uh, this dialogue, I think it's so powerful. Even 30 years from now, even after we didn't uh, help thousands of people become multimillionaires, I still have a sneaky suspicion this is still going to be an area that we have to focus on, even if the numbers reversed and it was 95% of funding was going to blacks and, <laughs> and women-owned businesses. I think we still need to be at the guard to make sure it stood that way. And so I look forward to uh, standing shoulder, um, shoulder to shoulder and doing this work with you, man. Yeah, man, uh, same. And, uh, you know, if it reverses and it goes to where it's 95% to <laughs> black and uh, it's black and minority and women and women-owned businesses, then that's a, that's a good problem to have. We'll fix, exactly. there, there'll be problems that'll be inherent with that, uh, with that setup as well. Uh, and we'll just be solving those problems. Uh, you know, I say, uh, I say that, I, I say that to, um, the people that work for me, the foreman of the crews and all that. I say, just be, be a problem solver. Just be a professional problem solver. Exactly. That's what we did. Exactly. I'm so glad we had this conversation. Uh, I want everyone uh, who is interested, I want you to uh, look at the show notes, and I want to make sure that we get you connected to Armand so then you can decide from there if there, this is a good fit for both sides. And I'm really excited about this conversation uh, that is causing more and more black equity. Uh, Armand Davis, thank you for coming on Black Equity, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. It's good, good talking to you, man.
What a great episode. I want to thank our guest today, Armand Davis and the Paragon Group, for stopping by and having this conversation. We have to have more talks around minority-owned, women-owned businesses and how we can invest in them and grow our ecosystem. This is such an important conversation. If you are an accredited investor and this is something that you are interested in, I want to make sure that we make that personal introduction for you. So you can email us at blackequitynetwork at gmail.com. And I I want to make that introduction and we build this ecosystem together. Once again, I want to thank everyone for uh, tuning in. And if you want to continue with this conversation or if you want to add to this, you want to be a guest, make sure you send us an email as well. I look forward to speaking with you in the near future. Thank you for being a supporter of Black Equity Podcast. Make sure you share this with your entire network. It's time for us to share this information so we can get this in the right hands and in the right ears. I'll talk to you soon.